This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana, living through litigation. Welcome back. This is part four in our series where we find out where the legal world intersects with the medical world. In the last legal series episode, we spoke with Tom Doyle, a malpractice lawyer of almost 40 years. And in that episode, we learned that when you get a notification of a malpractice suit, you should stop, take a deep breath, and call your risk management team or malpractice insurance team. So maybe not exactly the way I responded. (laughs) (laughs) 82% is the number to remember. Remember, 82% of cases filed get dismissed along the way. 82% of those cases who don't get dismissed actually settle. And 82% of those who do go to trial, the defendant or provider will prevail. The four Ds of any medical negligence are duty, deviation from the standard of care, direct cause, and damages. And all four must be present. It is okay to discuss the process, the emotions, the what you're going through, but not the particulars. Save that for privileged conversations. And try not to take it personally. Over half of physicians will be sued in a lifetime. We just do the best we can every day and focus on the patients in front of us because it is so hard to predict who will sue. Sarah, as you looked back on your own case, what were some of the things that really jumped out at you? Yeah, it's interesting. One thing that I think was a positive was actually our charting. (laughs) So the senior resident I was working with at the time was excellent, and she did a great job of documenting all of the steps of the case between our care and the care of the consulting team that was admitting the patient. All of those steps were well documented. And in the end, that was really helpful for us going forward with the case. Sarah, I think that might be the first time in the history of ever that anyone has said, yes, the EMR was a positive. (laughs) But you got to love a good resident. And actually, Tom Doyle and John Rose and I dive into charting next. I think an area that I suspect for you can be challenging is the concept of charting. We spoke of this before that back when we used to have handwritten charts on a little piece of paper and handwritten orders, and that was a way. And then we went to, um, you know, checkbox systems. I think the product that some people are familiar with was one called the T system was one company, but there were many companies that had these simple, but now we're all the way to a full on electronic medical record with comprehensive information auto imported in. Everyone who clicks on us does something. There's a memory left. You can find who signed what. Do you have some do's and don'ts for docs about with their charting? And I'm sure cases have been made and broken based on how things were written. Let me answer a different question first, which uh, I'll ask myself and answer. Do I enjoy working with medical records? Hell no. (laughs) When I get a case and have to defend someone, especially if we're dealing with care that occurs over some period of time, electronic medical records can be very, very difficult to use. You might want to ask someday uh, your risk manager at the hospital or your medical records person at the hospital to pick a chart and ask the person to print that chart for you so that you can see what we get. 
And what you will see bears absolutely no resemblance to what you see if you're sitting in a terminal looking at a chart. It comes out very, very differently. We don't know or see or aware of any pop-ups, warnings. We don't see the templates that you're clicking the boxes on. We don't see a very large amount of information. And then added to that, you know, I understand the rationale for electronic medical records. In my mind, electronic medical records have become a billing tool. It's a collection of data that then someone in the billing department can use to maximize the amount of reimbursement wherever that reimbursement is coming from. Electronic medical records, yes, you can free text, but people tell me, yeah, but I got to click here and then I got to, you know, and it's free texting is, is not easy. And, and if, if you have metrics, you have to see more and more patients and you have to move faster and faster. And, you know, electronic medical records are supposed to speed up the process and perhaps they do. But when, when I get them, there's a lot of objective, useless information. There's very little subjective, helpful information. For example, I don't know anymore how many times, John, you go back and you check on a patient two, three, maybe four times over the three or four hours in the ED. I don't see that information anymore. Um, I see your initial assessment and then maybe a note that, you know, saw a patient, but I don't see what has happened since. Basically, I got the, the triage assessment, I got the initial nursing assessment, I got the, the initial uh, ED note, and then I got the discharge. And there's really very little about what happened uh, in between. So I digressed with my own question and I forgot yours. That's <laughs> a gr great point because I, I think, as you said, we'll get a lot of orientation to maximizing the billing. Make sure you click on this little button or you say this phrase. But it'd be wonderful to probably have, like you say, have a chart reviewed by an outside critic, which would be an attorney looking at it. And how does it flow? Because we do have little templates and things we can do that can timestamp, like saw a patient. Everyone has these charts like that. But I don't think we realize that it doesn't come out in a, in a format that gives you a, a clear narrative. So that's very helpful. Well, there's something called, some people call it an audit trail. Some people call it the metadata and a sophisticated plaintiff's attorney always will ask for that. And sometimes there's pushback from IT, but that can give you a lot of information about who's going in, doing what, when, but that's not part of the, the official medical record. And we have to ask for that. And it, it's just, there's so many places to look. Um, now you have physicians texting or using internal secure communication networks. Well, that's not captured as part of the official medical record. I mean, you might want to understand in your hospital, you know, besides sitting in a terminal inputting data, if you're using a phone or, or, or a text or, or you're using uh, an internal communication system that's HIPAA secure, where is that captured and uh, how is it captured? But I think my original question was back to the point of over the years of charting, what are the, the pitfalls or things that, and certainly electronic medical records like auto-populating a physical exam or something, 
And so an element ends up in your chart that you actually didn't do, but got checked. And so can you speak to those kind of things? That's less of an issue when we're dealing with the emergency department, because generally you're, you're dealing with just one note and, and maybe a couple add-ons to that note. You know, wh- one thing that becomes problematic, for example, once the patient's admitted, and then you have the same hospitalist note every day, even though the patient's condition is changing and what you're seeing is the hospitalist is simply bringing forward what they already did and is not acknowledging, you know, what is currently happening. But in the emergency department specifically, you just have to be careful that you click the right box. I mean, if if you have a patient who comes in in a coma and and is immediately intubated in the emergency department, you don't want to be documenting a normal neurologic examination. Your physical examination probably did not even include the neurologic examination because you're looking at the patient and you know there's no reason to do that. But then when you go into the chart, when you get to the neurologic line of the physical examination, well, I got to click on something (laughs) and you click on normal. Okay, you're thinking no harm, no foul. Well, suddenly if you're sued about something unrelated to the neurologic examination and the patient's neurologic status. Well, here's an example of poor charting. What else is poor charting? Well, the other poor charting is the issue in the case. It's almost like you automatically impeach yourself that everything is now vulnerable. That did you right. did you accidentally check that one? To, that right. would make sense. Yeah. And also, you know, if something unusual happens, you know, if a patient's leaving against medical advice, or there's you know, there's a significant issue between the, the nurse and the physician and, and, you know, the sort of issue that, that you would think maybe the nurse is going to go up the chain of command. Um, I mean, th- those sorts of, of issues, you know, it's probably a good idea in some form or fashion to acknowledge that in the chart so that later, you know, when someone's trying to figure out what happened, the information is there. It may help, may not but at least it's there to use. So just be honest and straightforward with what's there. Is more detail better, less detail? I like more detail because, as I said, with in the old days, you can't see me, but my hair is gray, and, and so I can say the old days. <laughs> but um, uh, as I said, got a lot of information from a handwritten or a dictated note about what the person was thinking, whether it's the physician or the nurse. And that's just, that doesn't exist anymore. And and to the extent you can add that to the note, great. But I think the constraints of modern medicine and the, the electronic medical record prevent you from doing that on a routine basis. Sarah, in the last episode, you mentioned you remembered the case because there had been a bad outcome. Did you address that bad outcome in real time when it occurred? You know, I didn't speak with the patient or the family at that time because the bad outcome and the intervention that led to the bad outcome both occurred after the patient had already been admitted. And so despite the patient still being in the emergency room at that time, the admitting team had taken over her care. And so I didn't really pursue it any further at that time, although I I really kind of wanted to. That is super complicated, Sarah. And 
I don't have a great prescription for that moment either, which is why I wanted to talk to Tom about this. Like, what is okay to say when things go less than ideal? For you, a case starts when you receive notification or that phone call from the physician. Oftentimes, we envision that process when something goes wrong. How do you approach those cases when you feel like something happened that you're not fully happy with? Do you apologize to the family? Should you call a lawyer ahead of time? What do you think you should do at those moments? You know, as a human being, and you're empathetic, and and you're concerned, and you want to allay the family's worries or concerns or the patient's worries or concerns, there are things you can say that can't be used later against you. You know, I can speak for California. I think, you know, many states, if not all states, have some similar law. Um, I, I know many of our listeners are outside of California, but I would suspect that, that where you practice has something uh, similar, but we have a, a provision uh, that says basically uh, if someone says I'm sorry or makes a benevolent gesture to a patient or a patient's family because of an injury or death, the expression or gesture cannot be used at trial as an admission of liability. What that means is Yes, you can talk to the patient, and yes, you can talk to the family, and you can say, I'm sorry this happened. You know, I understand you're upset. Remember, we talked about this uh, before, that this, is, this could have happened. You, you can do and say those things. You know, you're not going to have an attorney involved at that point because you're dealing with care in real time or, or something that just happened. But you know, maybe you want to talk to your risk manager or somebody like that about the best way of, of doing this. You know, should there be a, a small meeting? Maybe who should attend? You know, now you're into the issue of just culture. But what you don't want to say or do is say something that can be used against you at trial. You know, you've all heard of hearsay. You know, you can't at trial introduce a hearsay statement for the truth of the matter asserted. But there are certain exceptions to the hearsay rule, and one of those is a declaration against interest. So if the physician is is talking to the grieving wife and says to the wife, you know, I really screwed up, you know, this is where I went wrong, I made a mistake, words to that effect, that is a declaration against interest that's an exception to the hearsay rule that can be admitted at the time of trial. And in fact, I, I found something in one of my hanging folders, if people still use hanging folders. I <laughs> but it, it was a sad case. Uh, some years ago, a 30-year-old woman presented to the emergency department on three separate occasions. And on each occasion, the, the, the impression was a threatened miscarriage and she was sent home where, uh, in fact, she had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured and she passed away. I mean, a very sad case. One of the physicians involved wrote a letter to the surviving husband done shortly after the death that uh, in, in great part caused us to settle this case because his first paragraph said, 
On Monday, I returned to work after a short time away to visit family, and I learned of the tragic death of X at R.E.D. last week. I wish to express to you and your family my immense sadness over your loss. I cannot possibly imagine the grief that you all must suffer at this time. That's fine. That was great. Then the next paragraph said, as one of several physicians to see your wife during the past few weeks, I must acknowledge responsibility for our systemic failure to foresee the events which later transpired and for not being in position to act and to avert the precipitous outcome. Retrospectively, I apologize that despite our referrals, OB surge specialist surgical intervention did not occur earlier on in her symptomatic course. Okay, well, from my perspective, that's not okay. That's an admission of, of liability that I was below the standard of care because I did not ask for an OB consultation earlier. So, you just need to be aware of, you know, what you, you can and, and can't say. When a mistake happens, you give the wrong medicine. You did the wrong thing. You know, we do tell the patient immediately that this happened because the consequence, if we don't say that, we hide it. That's obviously worse. Yeah, no, and, and that's the right thing to do. What you said, John, is, is you need to acknowledge that a error or mistake was made. You know, we gave your three-year-old daughter, nine milligrams of morphine when we should have given her a milligram and a half of nine, nine milligrams of morphine. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But hold the why, uh, because at that point, you probably don't have all the facts. You know, you don't know, did the Pixis machine malfunction? Did the nurse do three overrides? Um, you, you don't know the whys and how comes. But yes, you acknowledge the mistake. If the patient or the family wants more, that's when you get into, you know, you involve risk management. Is there going to be a meeting? Who participates? And, and again, you know, going to the, the issue of uh, just culture, which works great in large institutional settings, but doesn't work so well in, you know, smaller community-based hospitals. Yeah, I usually have that discussion and say explicitly what happens. And at our hospital, we have an incident report that we can file that then, you know, as you said, in that cultural of a large hospital sets off a series of events where people look into it and I let them know that we're going to do that so that we can kind of get to the cause of it. But I don't know exactly what happened at that moment. And in many of these cases, when they happen, since there was never a damage, though I've, I've learned through your art. Tom, that what I say, oh, there wasn't a damage. And you go, well, they, many times they can always find a damage. But I think for myself and how I teach and I think how our whole group and how I think as a specialty around the nation, we talk about that it is really trying to be aware of being as transparent as we can. And I don't know all the facts, so I can't give the why because I may not know the why and the, or the why may be quite complicated. And it's not that I'm trying to be evasive, but maybe I am kind of trying to be evasive that I don't want to get in trouble when I have to meet with you about it. So it's being careful about the precision of my words, but seeing being empathetic and transparent enough is maybe what I'm trying to get across. Yes. And, and something worth mentioning is, and this is back more to the mechanics of, of a lawsuit, but the plaintiff attorney typically is working on a contingency fee, meaning they will advance all the costs 
for their client and they will not recover those costs and they will not recover their contingency fee unless there's an actual settlement or a, a verdict in favor of the, the plaintiff at the time of trial. And at that point, the attorney gets paid back all his costs. The contingency fee is calculated. The attorney keeps his or her fee and uh, you know, the, the plaintiff uh, recovers uh, what is left. There is a certain economic aspect to medical malpractice litigation because these are very expensive cases, mainly because of the necessity of expert witnesses. In a simple standard of care only uh, ED case, if you go through trial, each side might spend $20,000, $25,000 on the expert witnesses. Plaintiff's attorneys look at these cases with an economic analysis in mind Yes, this is a great case. It's the nine milligrams, should have got one and a half milligrams for this 15 kilogram child. But how's the child? Well, the child is perfectly fine. You know, spent an extra two or three days in the hospital, but recovered just fine. Is there malpractice? Absolutely. Is there some injury or damage? Absolutely. They required additional treatment, some more stays and more days in the hospital. But is an attorney going to take that case? No. The case doesn't have enough value to warrant spending the money on the expert witnesses, and they're not going to get much of anything by way of a contingency fee versus that same child suffers an anoxic brain injury and now is going to require 24-hour attendant care for the rest of their life, well, yes, that's a case somebody would be interested in from an economic point of view. If you were to envision after your long career a way that would be both equitable, fair for all people when things you know, aren't right that way, what would, you, what would be you envision? Well, I, I think it, it would put me out of a job, but uh, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days anyway. Some states have different versions of this, but I'll call it a patient compensation fund, where it's sort of like no-fault auto insurance. You know, perhaps instead of everyone spending their malpractice premium every year, sending it to a malpractice insurance company, we're talking Shangri-La, Instead of paying that premium every year to a uh, malpractice insurance company, it goes into a, a state compensation fund that grows over time. And then a person who is injured, whether it's a small injury or a large injury, can go to the patient compensation fund, present Uh, their case to the patient compensation fund and have the case decided not by a jury of, in California, 12 lay people who will have varying degrees of education and probably little, if any, knowledge of medicine and anatomy and physiology, but rather it's a decision made by, you know, your peers and perhaps, you know, with some public participation a decision is made and an award is made that is fair and equitable. But that's Shangri-La. Ooh, I like that idea, though. And, and the federal government does this with vaccines. You know, if you have an adverse reaction, an injury due to a vaccine, there is a federal compensation, compensation fund that the money comes from 
I believe it's the pharmaceutical companies based on, you know, doses produced. Tom, as we wrap up here, anything else you think that emergency medicine physicians should know? Emergency medicine is a fabulous specialty in my mind because you know a lot about a lot of different areas. I think you need to enjoy what you do. You need to enjoy practicing medicine. And you need to just put out of your mind the thought of defensive medicine, the threat of litigation, and just provide to your patients the best possible care you can with the circumstances that you have. Sarah, remind me, what happened with the case? How did it ultimately resolve? Or is it still going on? (laughs) (laughs) No, the case is over now, and um, it did go pretty far. It actually went all the way to deposition. And that was another stressful piece. So I squeezed myself into my suit that I probably hadn't worn since fellowship interviews <laughs> and um, and went to the legal offices to be deposed. And I kept on the drive there thinking through all the things that I could and couldn't say and or shouldn't, shouldn't say and words that I might want to avoid or specific words I might want to use, things I had been counseled on. And when I got there, the other lawyer was was waiting for us, and um, the whole process was pretty smooth. It was stressful. It was a lot of going back and reading my records and and what I had said that day, my own notes, my own charting, which is where that charting came in handy. And ultimately, it was over, and I still didn't know where it was going, but soon after that, the case actually settled. Pulse check. The EMR can be to our advantage and disadvantage. It doesn't show the granular work we put into each patient. So if you do something, write it down in real time. Also, make sure your note reflects what you actually do. If you use templates or macros, make sure you double check everything to reflect what you actually did. When you make a mistake, be a human. Discuss the mistake and apologize, but don't get into the why. If it becomes any more complicated, get your risk management team involved in how to approach this conversation. That's a great summary. I really like what Tom said. Emergency medicine is a fabulous specialty. We should enjoy practicing medicine and put out of mind the threat of litigation. We should just try each day to provide the best care we can in the circumstances we are in. I love it. And I think it's a little bit easier said than done, but, but wise words. <laughs> well, follow us at EM Pulse Podcast and show us some love by liking and sharing our podcast. Thank you to our department for the opportunity to explore these topics together. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for recording this series all over Sacramento. See you next time. Bye.